Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Michael Sleesman, Managing Director and Research Scholar at the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, we bring you the next in a series of parallel papers presented at our 2009 annual conference, Global Bioethics, Emerging Challenges, Facing Human Dignity. In this paper, Patrick T. Smith, MDiv, MA, PhD candidate, explores the complex ethical issues surrounding palliative sedation. Mr. Smith's presentation is entitled, Discerning Palliative Sedation from Euthanasia. What's at stake for human dignity? The last presidential election saw Washington become the second state to legalize physician-assisted suicide. Pressure will increase for other states to follow suit so that those who are terminally ill can exercise the full scope of their autonomy and die with dignity through physician-assisted suicide, a form of euthanasia, if they so choose. Many concerned persons who hold to a doctrine of the sanctity of human life see trends toward leaning, uh, legalizing physician-assisted suicide and the broad acceptance of euthanasia as not upholding the inherent dignity of human beings, as is often claimed, but actually undermining it. Luke Gormley notes that the doctrine of the sanctity of life is the absolute prohibition on intentionally killing for reasons incompatible with justice. The doctrine of the sanctity of life flows from the biblical, theological, and philosophical foundations of human dignity that have been ably expounded already in this conference. Christians engaged in palliative care or comfort care at the end of life have a responsibility to do what is permissible within theological, ethical, and legal boundaries to serve, treat, and care for their patients. Palliative sedation is thought to be an advance in palliative care that has alleviated the need for physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia when managing otherwise uncontrollable pain in the terminally ill. However, there is some question as to whether this procedure is sufficiently distinct from euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. This has been the subject of much discussion and controversy in current literature. One such example can be found in a recent issue of the Hastings Center Report. In an intriguing and thought-provoking essay entitled Terminal Sedation, Pulling the Sheet Over Our Eyes, Margaret P. Batten of the University of Utah seems to argue that one cannot consistently affirm the practice of terminal or palliative sedation, while at the same time rejecting physician-assisted death, a form of euthanasia. To be sure, she does not claim that the practice of terminal sedation is wrong. Instead, her issue is that it is often practiced disingenuously. The common features of the two practices are obscured or sanitized in professional discourse, Baden thinks, due to the anxiety that terminal sedation, the permissible strategy, might be confused with euthanasia and physician-assisted death, the impermissible strategy. This obfuscation is where it is claimed that the sheet is pulled over our eyes, in her words, concerning the practice of terminal sedation. If so, then it may be argued that if there is no legitimate distinction, then physician-assisted suicide and other forms of euthanasia should be legal and legitimate end-of-life treatment options for patients along with palliative sedation. If this view is correct, <clears throat> then Christians who support the use of sedation in the terminally ill should have no problem with euthanasia. Or, if this is unacceptable as being a violation of the sanctity of human life doctrine, then they should rethink their position on palliative sedation being a morally legitimate part of the continuum of effective palliative care. 
Now, while I am involved in hospice health care ethics, I am not a clinician, and so will try to avoid crossing over in those areas where I'm not qualified to speak. In these areas that deal with the specific details of clinical sedating practices, I rely on the expertise of palliative care professionals. In the words of the good American philosopher Clint Eastwood, in the role of Spectre Dirty Harry Callahan, a man has got to know his limitation. Having said that, I'm well aware of mine. Nevertheless, I do want to argue that, one, there can be a legitimate moral distinction made between euthanasia and palliative sedation, and two, those who oppose euthanasia while maintaining the appropriateness of palliative sedation in certain situations are not acting inconsistently. Thus, palliative sedation in some circumstances as a form of palliative care for the terminally ill is morally permissible and does not violate the intrinsic dignity of vulnerable patients. For the sake of this discussion, let us understand the term euthanasia as referring to healthcare professionals intentionally terminating or shortening the lives of patients by act or omission. A few points to highlight concerning this definition is that first, it is confined to the medical context, at least in this scope that I want to present it. Second, the intention of the healthcare professional is the crucial feature. While utilitarians and consequentialists of other stripes often deny it, intentions do matter in assessing the moral value and culpability of human acts. As Daniel uh, Solmacy writes, intentions are the backbone of the agency in moral acts. To discount the importance of intentions in the moral evaluation of human acts is to discount the central feature that makes these happenings moral happenings in the first place, end quote. This is easily illustrated in many ways that one can have the exact same consequences yet have diverging moral assessments. For example, consider little Johnny tripping the lady while crossing the street. We would assess moral blame if he intentionally tripped her to see how high her groceries would fly up in the air by doing so. Alternatively, we would say that little Johnny acted in a way that is morally praiseworthy if he does so to keep her from walking in front of a car. Let's assume for the sake of this thought experiment that he had no other plausible options, right? It's a little extreme, but nevertheless, I think you uh, get the point here. Uh, A third point concerning this definition is the suggestion that one can engage in euthanasia not only by some act, let's say, for example, lethal injection, but it also includes the deliberate withholding of a given treatment if the intention is to kill the patient. This is sometimes known as passive euthanasia. Uh, Now, I know that many describe passive euthanasia in a way that does not uh, entail this notion of intent, and and that's fine. And here again, we'll have to uh, parse out the words and be very clear as to what we mean by that. But at least in this context, uh, I want to say that this uh, 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 omission, uh, when we do things of omission with the intent of killing the patient, that this would also fall under the heading of euthanasia. Consequently, a healthcare professional who switches off a ventilator or who withdraws a patient's tube feeding performs euthanasia if by doing so he or she intends to hasten the death of the patient as opposed to alleviating burdensome treatment. As one has noted, quote, an intention to remove a burdensome treatment is not an intention to end life, end quote. Or in those cases where in the professional judgment of the healthcare team, the patient has reached the point where treatment becomes futile. In the words of John Keown, If what characterizes euthanasia is an intention to kill, it surely makes no moral difference if the doctor carries out that intention by an omission rather than by an act. 
terminal sedation is one of those terms that is ambiguous and stands in need of clarification. I think an appropriate understanding, at least in the palliative hospice care context, uh, appropriate understanding of terminal sedation is aggressive symptom control to the point of sedation in terminally ill patients. The practice is best understood as a practice of sedating people at the end or terminus of their lives. These patients are unable to have their symptoms, such as pain or agitation, controlled while leaving them conscious. Medical anesthesia has for some time been able to keep people in such a complete state of unconsciousness that we are able to perform medical wonders, such as transplanting a heart or removing a cancer without the patient feeling anything during the procedure. It is, in fact, some would say a moral imperative to provide adequate anesthesia when painful operations are performed when it is readily available. Few would argue with this. Palliative care and hospice physicians also think that it is a moral imperative to treat extreme pain with similar anesthetic techniques when a patient's symptoms cannot be managed while they are awake. The word terminal means the end or stopping point, such as the bus terminals being the stopping point of a bus line. Likewise, terminal patients are at the end of their lives, and terminal sedation is a palliative care technique used to care for terminal patients. Perhaps another way to put this is that the use of the word terminal is to describe the when of sedation, not the why. To return to Batten's essay mentioned earlier, it seems to me that much of what she writes and argues for seems to distort the normal purpose and practice of sedation in the terminally ill. After reading Batten's essay, one could be left with an inaccurate understanding of terminal sedation. And so there is a danger that we can be distracted from those important and less controversial features of the practice that can assist us in distinguishing it from physician-assisted death and euthanasia. Batten seems to think that the purpose of terminal sedation is to terminate the patient. This appears to be the evident assumption underlying many of her concerns raised in the article. Regarding her concern for patient autonomy and consent being honored in the practice of terminal sedation, she writes, quote, the new euphemism, palliative sedation, now often used instead of the more distressing terminal sedation, only reinforces the problem of patient consent being misdirected by focusing on avoiding pain and not on causing death, which is where it should be. By avoiding the word terminal, and hence any suggestion that death may be coming, the most important feature of this practice is obscured, and terminal sedation is confused with palliative care, she writes, end quote. This seems to be a critical misunderstanding by Batten, or at least um, in my estimation. The linguistic shift to palliative sedation that many now utilize is to clarify the intent and application of an often misunderstood and, yes, abused practice. Contrary to Batten, the use of the term palliative sedation should not be understood as being a new euphemism to take the edge off of a controversial practice and as an illegitimate attempt to avoid the similarities with euthanasia. Instead, the use of palliative is to reflect the goal and the intent of terminal sedation, which is to alleviate otherwise unmanageable symptoms, which is also the most important feature, not the hastening of death. This is not dissimilar to the shift in language, perhaps, uh, in the phrase that people have a right to die with dignity that many proponents of euthanasia employ from the more unfavorable phrases like, well, people have a right to kill themselves and we have a responsibility to help. 
the use of these phrases, it seems, is to connote the intent of the physician to care for the patient and to emphasize the goal of euthanasia, uh, which is to be an exercise in mercy and an expression of patient autonomy, according to the proponents of euthanasia. Moreover, Band acknowledges that terminal sedation may end pain, but also thinks it ends life, which is evident in a couple of ways. First, she thinks that sentient life is ended because the sedated state does not allow for, quote, the possibility of social interaction, end quote. Second, quote, because artificial nutrition and hydration are usually withheld, it also ends biological life, end quote. In other words, it appears that Batten is making a common distinction between biographical and biological life. Uh, this, though, I think leads to some confusion. And yes, there's an assumed kind of anthropology that underlies uh, some of these claims uh, as well. But nevertheless, <clears throat> I think it still leads to some confusion. With respect to the first category, sentient life being ended, I am unable to discern how this sedated state brought on by palliative sedation differs from someone who is sedated in preparation for an operation. The same medicines are frequently used for both palliative sedation and standard surgical procedures. In these situations, the sentient life of the patient has ceased and social interaction is not possible, albeit temporarily. Yet we do not consider people as being dead or without life who are unconscious due to anesthesia. So too is the case with legitimate practices of palliative sedation. If the terminally ill patient's pain becomes manageable, there is no reason to continue its administration, and in some sense, uh, excuse me, in some cases, the patient regains consciousness. So the appeal to lack of social interaction and sentience brought on by palliative sedation gives the impression that the patient's life has irreversibly ended by this procedure alone, which is not correct. The more crucial issue is the second category, where food and water have been discontinued. There needs to be clarification and qualification concerning terminal sedation while withholding nutrition and hydration from the terminally ill. In the vast majority of patients in which terminal sedation is used, at least in palliative and hospice care, eating and drinking have stopped due to the disease process or to intractable symptoms before the initiation of sedation. The lack of desire for food is common at the end of life. Adding artificial feeding and hydration in these cases can often contribute to a person's misery and will not prolong life. Sedation started in such an individual where artificial hydration and nutrition are withheld will not hasten death because food and water can no longer prolong it. Patients have often deteriorated to the point where natural or, or artificial feeding is futile and perhaps harmful to the patient. In other cases where food and fluids would prolong life, there is no reason that they cannot be continued. It does not seem that there is anything especially controversial about sedation in the terminally ill without artificial feeding in cases where if food and water were provided, the patients would actually be more burdened with the artificial feeding than without it. This should be the most common use of palliative sedation. And so it should be clear that terminal sedation in this scenario or in this conceptualization is very different from the purposes and goals of physician-assisted death and euthanasia. This conclusion, though, varies fundamentally with Batten's claim that patients who are sedated to the degree involved in terminal sedation cannot eat or drink and without artificial nutrition and hydration will necessarily die virtually always before they would have died otherwise. 
Interestingly, she does not provide any data to support the claim that by not having artificial feeding, the patient would almost always die earlier than they would otherwise. Furthermore, it does not appear that she takes seriously the option that the patient, after being sedated to treat otherwise uncontrollable pain, could die of the disease before getting to the point of dehydration, which is typical when the patient is in the active phase of dying. In a recent edition of the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management, there was an article entitled Control Sedation for Refractory Symptoms in Dying Patients. It recorded the findings of a research study that was aimed, quote, to assess the need and effectiveness of sedation in dying patients with intractable symptoms and the thoughts of relatives regarding sedation, end quote. And uh, there's a lengthy little, or several sentences here that I want to quote from this particular article that I think are, are insightful, at least for me. It was found that although the principle of double effect provides moral reassurance, its ambiguity may induce the suspicion that death is hastened and that may act as a deterrent to the provision of good symptom control. Opposing this concern, the majority of studies of interventions with potent drugs, including high-dosage opioids and sedatives to treat suffering in the last days of life, did not demonstrate that the treatment hastened death, if carefully administered by a skilled professional. The relatively short period of time uh, to, between starved sedation and death is consistently reported in the range of 24 to 72 hours indicating that the need for sedation is an indicator of impending death rather than a cause of premature death. Uh, death. Patients who were sedated had a longer survival when compared with patients who were not sedated. Moreover, most patients had already stopped eating, were unable to swallow or cough, and had severe fatigue. In these conditions, sedation cannot be said to hasten death through dehydration and starvation. End quote. What this suggests is that there uh, is data that points to the fact that palliative sedation properly administered does not hasten death, and further contrabatten that in appropriate circumstances, patients do not die from dehydration or starvation as a result of palliative sedation. However, to be charitable to Batten's claim, perhaps what she has in mind concerning palliative sedation is a medical practice where patients are sedated until they are comatose and are maintained in this condition until they die, in order to relieve them from the experience of conditions found to be unacceptable while at the same time ensuring that they are deprived of food uh, and fluids in order to hasten their deaths. Based on the definition of euthanasia given earlier, this state of affairs, it would seem, would be an instance of euthanasia. To be sure, there are cases where things are not so straightforward when it comes to medical practices uh, that are often referred to as terminal or palliative sedation. For example, what do we think about a situation where the patient who has not transitioned to the active phase of dying requests sedation for an indefinite period to treat her pain and then refuses artificial nutrition and hydration on the basis of there being extreme measures? What are we to make of the scenario where a physician informs a terminally ill patient who is not in the active phase of dying that she has the option of being sedated to unconsciousness to treat her pain actual or potential, and also has a right to refuse artificial nutrition and hydration after sedation has begun. These, no doubt, are very difficult situations, and, and they're certainly uh, vexing questions that we need to ask of ourselves, and certainly there are cases that are more controversial, and rightfully so. But what follows from all this? 
Well, I think that what this shows is that there are some clear cases where eternal sedation is practiced that are distinct from physician-assisted death and euthanasia, and there are others where there are not any clear distinguishing factors between uh, the two. This is why the need for guidelines and procedures for any institution engaged in this practice are essential. Batten suggests that in some cases, uh, physician-assisted death may even fare better than terminal sedation due to the safeguards developed for it as opposed to the lack of guidelines established for sedation of the terminally ill. According to Batten, quote, terminal sedation has no institutional safeguards built in, end quote. This statement, however, strikes one as odd. The hospice organization with which I'm affiliated has an institutional policy that establishes the proper protocol regarding the administration of palliative sedation uh, that is to be followed along with the procedures before the sedation is to be performed. It discusses the condition of the patient for which the procedure is appropriate, discussion of nutrition and hydration and lack thereof, and informed consent among the issues. Uh, moreover, recent professional journals on palliative care have published some helpful guidelines to determine when the administration of palliative sedation is also uh, appropriate. Now, to be fair, it is quite, reason, uh, it's quite reasonable that, uh, to think that some involved in palliative care have not performed this procedure properly. Perhaps what Batten is thinking is the lack of universal guidelines for the healthcare institutions in general involved in this practice. Undoubtedly, there can be abuses that take place in any medical procedure. To administer terminal sedation without proper institutional safeguards is to engage in the practice irresponsibly. I certainly acknowledge that there uh, are cases where uh, sedation in the terminally ill is used as an end around to physician-assisted death or euthanasia to accomplish the same goal. In these cases, I can agree with Ben that there are no real morally legitimate distinguishing features from physician-assisted death and euthanasia. Therefore, those who oppose euthanasia should conclude that to engage in sedation the terminally ill in these controversial cases would be inappropriate. These individuals would certainly be acting disingenuously if they knew their intent was to hasten the patient's death. Clinical practitioners who responsibly engage in terminal or palliative sedation do not act inconsistently while maintaining opposition to euthanasia. In conclusion, my claim is not that all cases uh, where terminal sedation is used are clearly distinct from euthanasia. It is instead that these admittedly difficult cases do not rule out the fact that there are clearer and more common scenarios where the practice of terminal sedation constitutes appropriate palliative care measures and is distinct from euthanasia. The old dictum of jurisprudence holds true here. Tough cases make bad law. We ought not to examine the controversial or questionable cases of the application of sedation in the terminally ill to determine its similarity or lack thereof with euthanasia. Instead, it seems better methodologically speaking to examine the clear cases and on that basis determine whether we have crossed the line in more difficult ones. Palliative sedation is categorically distinct from euthanasia for the following reasons. First, when safely administered, palliative sedation does not cause death. Second, the intent of palliative sedation is to render intolerable suffering tolerable and death is not the means by which the relief of suffering is achieved. Third, the criterion for success in sedation is symptom relief, whereas the criterion for success in euthanasia is the death of the patient. Fourth, there is no evidence that properly done palliative sedation hastens death. It is these distinguishing features, I think, that make all the difference for human dignity when Christians engage in comfort care at the end of life.
that was Discerning Palliative Sedation from Euthanasia, What's at Stake for Human Dignity, by Patrick T. Smith, MDiv, MA, PhD candidate. Mr. Smith is Assistant Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and Ethics Coordinator at Angela Hospice Care Center in Michigan. A print version of this abstract with a selected bibliography is available on our website at cbhd.org. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center, and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website at cbhd.org. My name is Michael Sleesman, and I'm the Managing Director and Research Scholar of the Center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.